Hey everyone, this is Jim Duncan with Sweat the Details by Nest Realty. This week we talked with Lance Lambert from Resi Club. We've read Lance's stuff for years and we're excited to talk to him about what he's doing now. He's telling stories with data and we really love this conversation. Hope you enjoy it. What are we doing? Uh, you're going to talk about uh, Lance Lambert. Yeah, so I was really, really excited for this conversation because I have read everything Lance put out for years. Um, didn't realize that he was he did a stint at, at Realtor.com, but he was with Bloomberg, I think the Wall Street Journal, and now he's doing his own thing with called Resi Club, right? Which is um, you know real estate data and storytelling, and it's phenomenal. It's one of the things I read almost every day. But he puts out so much content that I have to be selective in the time I give because it's. It's so every article I'm looking at right now is is good. It's one that I want to read. That's awesome. Talk to me. I, I consider you someone who produces tons of content and writing around the real estate world. Talk to me about that process and 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 how what the work you do, how it how it piques your interest in what Lance does. Well, I mean, I, I think you know anybody who studies this market on a daily basis, you know, seeing somebody with his skill set and his obvious talent and passion for what he does is something that I admire. And I, you know, it makes it easier to read his stuff because he, he clearly enjoys telling a story. Mm -hmm. He clearly enjoys not simple in a bad way, but a simple display of data. So it's digestible by readers, whether they, and he talks about it in the conversation a little bit. He's like, he wants to have it so that if somebody is interested in an answer that he's providing, they can quickly find it in his tables which is an extraordinary skill set to be able to display complicated information in a way that people can understand quickly. Especially daily. I mean, his, again, his content calendar is, is off the charts, um, like what I did there. Uh, but it is, <laughs> it, he puts out so much stuff. And I think that one of the, the, one of the ones we talked about was the switching costs. And it was a concept that we all know in this space that the switching cost from, you know, moving from one house to the next is not just mortgage to mortgage. It's switching everything you're doing, financial and psychological benefits and, and losses. Uh, and he touched on that quite a bit. And I think it's one of the, the better concepts that I've, I've seen uh, in the last probably 18 months. Uh, talking about, you know, yes, it's going from 2 or 3% to 8% or whatever, but it's also life upheaval and switching coffee shops and gyms and work and kids and everything. So it's it, it considering the switching cost is something I think that I, I, I really appreciate what he did. I think one of the hardest times I had when I was younger and in high school uh, was being able to figure out how to apply mathematics into my daily life. Mm -hmm. I had a hard time understanding and, and, and caring about math because I just didn't feel its applicability in my life. Now, as a grown adult, I've learned a lot, but I think that's what I value in what you're talking about with what Lance does. It's like he's taking numbers mm -hmm. and data, but he's turning it into a story about how these things are applicable into an everyday person's daily life. That this number change affects your life by where you're going to live, and that's going to change where your kids are going to go to school, and that number is going to change where you're going to go out for coffee, just like you said. And I feel like that story is something that, helps me relate because I know then like this is what my life feels like this is the things I like to do in my life and now all of a sudden I have data 
to show me where my influence is, like how my life is being influenced yeah. by real estate markets. Yeah. And so again, I say on the podcast that, you know, when, when Lance, when Lance announced Resi Club, uh, I immediately paid and subscribed because I knew that what he was going to put out was, was quality. And so anybody listening, if you, you know, if you can you know, subscribe to what he does, because it will be worth it. And I guarantee you, you'll get the return on your investment. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully y'all like the show. So we'll just jump right on in. Um, I'm Jim Duncan with Nest Sweat the Details, here with Keith Davis, Jonathan Kaufman, and Lance Lambert from Resi Club. Um, Lance, if you don't mind, just give us a little bit of idea of who you are, what you do, and and I'd love to hear some more about the the Resi Club story because I've followed you for years uh, as you put out data. But where did you start, and and how did the Resi Club come about? Yeah, so I, I've been working as a financial journalist for about 10 years. I'd worked for publications like Bloomberg, and then most recently, I was the real estate editor over at Fortune Magazine. And uh, in between that, I had decided I was, you know what, I'm going to leave journalism. Uh, I want to go become a data scientist. And so I decided to take a bridge job. And I went to work at Realtor.com. And when I was there, I was analyzing data every day, residential real estate data, and kind of preparing myself for a, for that full transition over to data science. And when I was doing it, one of the things I came to realize is, you know what? I am a very analytical person, but I don't want to look at data every day at every moment. And I really just wanted to be like more of the bridge, a data storyteller. And so I left Realtor.com and went to work at Fortune Magazine. And when I was there, I was brought in to build a data newsletter for executives. So looking at different trends throughout business and what's kind of going on in the business world. And when I was there, uh, the pandemic hit. And so one of the things that I did right away, I was living in New York, is my wife and I, who we are both from the Cincinnati area family-wise, and we had lived in a very small apartment with a three-year-old, we're like, you know what, let's get out of here, let's go build a home back home, and let's get some more space. And so one thing that started to happen is housing started to boom. And I wasn't brought into Fortune to write about housing, but there was a need for good coverage of housing, especially down to like you know, more of a metro level and kind of like what's going on and explaining it. And so I just kind of got sucked in like a vacuum into it. And I started writing about it, then started tweeting about it more. And then once the mortgage rate shock occurred, uh, there was really a need for me to like put that into context. And then I got sucked in further into housing. And by the end of my time at Fortune, I kind of knew you know what, this is what people are going to know me for. My stuff that I've written about on housing is kind of resonated more. And so I just decided to do it full time. And so I left Fortune to build Resi Club. And Resi Club's not geared just towards home builders. It's not geared just towards single family landlords. It's not just agents. It's really the whole spectrum of residential real estate. Uh, whether you're loan officer, real estate agent, home builder, single family landlord on the institutional side, I really want to like take a step back and put and explain like just what's going on in residential real estate the best that I can and through a data lens. And that's really what Resi Club is. 
And so my hope is that my coverage at Resi Club continues to get better and better over time. But that that's the mission is just the best coverage that I can do for residential real estate through like a, a data lens. It's amazing, man. I think it's it's you know as soon as I saw that you announced you know Resi Club, I you know I, I subscribed and paid uh, you know, as, as fast as I could because it's your your content is remarkable. Well, well thank you. I yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, I mean, it was the 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 content's remarkable. The sourcing of the data is remarkable, and the storytelling is is equally so because it's it's one thing to put out a a chart or a graph, but to contextualize that from a national scale, regionalize it. And then, you know, I think you've got a spreadsheet that uh, I think it's just for paid members, but that is 800 metro areas that is, and it's extraordinary. And it's, it's one of the things that I use from a practicing residential broker to help, you know, me understand that story and help convey it to my client base. Uh, because it's, it, there's, there is so much data out there that it's easy to get inundated and frankly drown uh, if you're looking at all the data. So being able to understand the data that, that's right. is, is, is really critical. Yeah. And if, if people can't do what you just described there, Jim, then I failed, right? If people can't, you know, like quickly synthesize and explain what's going on in today's housing market and they're a reader of mine, I have objectively failed at my job. So I, I try to do that. And then, you know, I kind of feel like my stories I try to all I try to thread them all together, right? I don't think you can take one of my pieces and be like, "Oh, that's the residential real estate market explained because I don't try to do it that way. I try to take itty bitty cuts and try to help people to be able to explain it. And so somebody should be able to explain, you know what? Not everything in residential real estate is terrible. There's not a lot of existing home sales occurring right now because affordability is so pressurized, the switching cost from moving from a home where you have maybe a, a $2,000 monthly payment to a $3,200 monthly payment, that switching cost is so high right now that existing home sales are just super constrained on a, on a historical basis. But you know what, on the new construction side, you know things are going on a lot stronger because builders don't have the existing inventory to compete against. And they have those high margins that they achieved during the pandemic. And they've only had to give some of that back to do the things like the incentives, like the mortgage rate buy downs that have helped them to meet the market. So I, I hope that people can like take these pieces and be able to, you know, really synthesize and explain what's going on in the residential market and then really their market as well. Well, I think, Lance, one of the one of the great things, you know, you, you said you got into this because you wanted to become a data scientist instead of a journalist. And obviously you've you've retained the journalism aspect. But I think. The big piece is so often, as Jim said, you can show a chart and that's data. Turning it into information is is step one, but turning it into truly usable and relatable information is a whole different piece. And I think, you know, you do an amazing job with that. And and whether you're doing it from a perspective of, like you said, you're 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 writing this for builders, for landlords, for agents, for the public, for, you know, you're not specifically targeting one one segment, but when you get into and the pieces we've read about the agency side of things in terms of, you know, being able to talk to your clients about the, um, you know, shrinkflation of, of builder size or of, of different um, constraint pieces. I think the stories do speak to the to the agent. They speak very, very well to to understanding what our next step is in as practitioners in this market. 
Um, and I just, I really appreciate being able to read that stuff. I'd love to, uh, and, and you know, a lot of what I do that I think could be copied that if people are depending on who people are communicating to in the real estate industry, there's some things that I do and visualize in a certain way that if they want to make their own charts, I think are, would be smart to copy. Like one of the things uh, that I think I do well are my tables where I have like three or four different columns. And so I cut the data in different ways so that if a reader has a question, they can probably find it in the table. And so what do I mean by that? An agent could take like, let's say five or six counties in their market, and they could do year over year prices, uh, two year change, three year change, four year change. And then, or, you know, if they want down from peak, they could have down from peak, or if they want since March, 2020, they could do that. And so the reader is able to quickly, you know, they don't just see the year over year number, but they have a little more and they can kind of guide themselves through it. Um, I, you know, I, I think cuts of data like that are really smart and putting it in tables. Yeah, no, I, I love the, the, the fact that it's, it's bite-sized, but it's also extremely broad and interesting too. And just, uh, just the, the data has been extremely, um, extremely helpful for, for us. And I'm sure for people across the country, but I, I want to dive into one of the comments that you made a few minutes ago about switching costs. It's just kind of a fascinating concept and it's something that we, don't think about, but happens all the time, right? If I want to, you know, if I want to change from an iPhone to an Android, right, there's, there's switching costs and, and can, can you talk a little bit about, um, about switching costs and housing and how that's impacted where we are right now? Okay. So let me do it through the lens of myself. I have a three bedroom house. My wife and I, we have two kids. We have a third kid on the way. So my mortgage rate is like 2.6, right? When that next kid comes and we don't have as many bedrooms, because switching cost is not just financial, it's also psychological. My switching cost to go to another home would go down, even if mortgage rates don't change. Because the personal cost to me of, you know, less room in the house, perhaps, or a wife who's not as happy with me because we don't have a bigger house, that changes the math there. So in my mind, when mortgage rates went from two, three, four, five, six, seven, that switching cost for somebody to give up their 2% or their 3% mortgage rate was super high and it shifted very dramatically. And we saw the exact same thing happen in the late 70s to early 80s when we went from nine, 8% mortgage rates all the way to 18% mortgage rates. So the switching cost for people to move at that time was astronomical. And we've seen that same thing today. So what happened back then? Well, existing home sales crashed. They fell from like four, almost four to two point something into the twos. And what occurred over time is as mortgage rates came off that 18% in 1981, the switching cost came down a bit for families, right? On a financial basis. And that got existing home sales up some but the, the switching costs were still high. If you had a 7 or 8% mortgage rate in the 70s, and then you had to go get a, you know, a 12 or a 13, even when you came off that peak, it was still high. So existing home sales took time to get back up. And what had to occur are all the lifestyle type events or people making more money that helps to you know, narrow that switching cost. So switching costs are both financial 
and psychological. And I think today heading forward, if mortgage rates could come down, like let's say we get into the higher fives, that would help to financially reduce switching costs. But then you also need some of the things like, you know, they have more kids or, you know, uh, life events or, you know, maybe a spouse gets an offer in a different city and that city has uh, higher earning potential, things that can kind of reduce that switching cost. And so that's why I think switching cost is kind of a healthier way to look at it, because at the end of the day, while there is a, a lock in effect and a rate lock, the, some of the people with two, three percent and four percent mortgage rates eventually will sell. You just kind of got to get that switching cost down to where it's something reasonable. So what's, what's really interesting is I'm sitting here thinking about that 18 percent marketplace from the 80s and and the switching cost, obviously, when it got down to 12 percent, you would think immediately, oh, it's an easy transfer. You're going to be reducing your costs. But the reality is there's also the opportunity just to refinance. And so the switching cost not just applies to, oh, you can drop your mortgage by buying a different house, but you could drop your mortgage by not buying another house, right? There's, there are multiple facets to that switching cost that, you know, as we're sitting here now, we've, we've dipped a little bit, we're falling off a little bit. If we, if we saw a 150 basis point move, it will free up that lock-in effect, but it also allows people to have a switching cost that is positive by not making a switch, right? I mean, that's, so there, there is both sides to that, which I think is going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, and if you're a player in the uh, real estate market and you're making a living off of transactions, kind of understanding indi individuals' switching costs and which ones, you know, might be closer to making that move. You know, if rates come down to X, these are the people that I know that are going to move. Yeah. Like, that's all super valuable information. Because there are a lot of trans, like, not hot transactions, but kind of like warm-ish transactions out there and just kind of knowing the temperature and what kind of gets them over the, but, over the edge. Sure, but the reality is exactly what you just said, which is the ultimate reason why people make moves is not because of a financial benefit. It's because something in their life has changed. There is a different need for a different home at that different time. And it can be hindered or helped by the financial side, but that's not... This is not purely a, hey, let's move to drop our mortgage by 500 bucks. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But the one asterisk I would put there is the transactions that are missing from today's market are the ones that because the switching cost has gotten so high so quickly, sure. they're just out. Yep. They're like that churn in the market. That, and that's why it's kind of key to kind of focus on them right now because th those are the ones, uh, you know, who hopefully over time will, will, create the recovery in the existing, uh, transaction market. No, I just, I love that, that mindset though. It's, it's, it's a great way to look at it. No, and I, th I think quantity, you know, there's, there's no way to quantify the, the psychological component. I mean, it's something that we all deal with daily with our clients, but the psychological aspect of, you know, changing from one you know, school system to the next or one grocery to the next and one family member, to, you know, you, which one do you love more to be closer to? I mean, I think those are components that you know, they are all factored into that equation. But there's no way to really quantify it other than the choices that they make uh, on, on that day that they. You know. Yeah. So. From a cycle perspective, the good things that have occurred in theory are one, we have probably tested the peak of the mortgage rates, the cycle, or hopefully, or at least at the very minimum, we have made it through the deterioration phase where affordability rapidly moves in one direction upward, right? right? 
But and uh, and what was a, a little bit of that? Okay, so the other part that's key is coming off of that eight handle and now down to like a higher six. That's one of the best things that can help us to make the current rate environment sound good is to go go test a higher amount. The only thing that's going to make 6.9 sound good is when you go up to 7.9. Um, and so those are the two good things that have happened. One, we have made it through the rapid deterioration phase and hopefully we've rolled over from the peak mortgage rate. And two, some of the people to have seen that peak mortgage rate helps to make some of the rates on the way down feel better. Right. Like because like 5.5 today sounds amazing for a lot of people, whereas 5.5, if you would have told somebody, you know, in January 2022, when mortgage rates were three, 5.5 would have sounded really scary. And the market did react and, you know, was kind of terrified when we got up to five and got up to five and a half. And before we had even made it to six. Well, it's funny. I'm going to echo that real quick, because when my my first loan was eight and an eighth and for a 30 year fixed. And then I remember getting into a discussion with one of my neighbors, and, and I said, you know, he said, well, rates just went to four and a quarter. This was years ago. And I said, yeah, you know, four and a quarter is not that high. I understand your perspective. But I think your point, your point is critical, though, is that it's easy for us to say, you know, rates were at 18% in the 80s. And it's just like with our, with our kids. It's like you can tell your kid, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. But it's not until they experience it and feel it. They really appreciate it. So the people in the market who they knew three, four, five, and then they feel seven and a half, eight and a quarter, six and a half looks pretty fantastic because they have felt that pain, if you will. So it's again, it's 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 um yeah. I, I think I'm gonna tell my kids the story because I think it, it, it's a valuable lesson for them to learn that they're going to ignore. I mean, ultimately, it sounds like it's you know the the yeah. I know probably all, the four of us wish we could make some algorithm that's like, all right, life happens at this <laughs> level and the interest rate differenti differentiation is this delta that le that equals, you know, it's time to move or it makes sense to move. And I know that we're, we're not going to quite get to that point, but it is interesting. And I, and I don't have the exact numbers on me right now, but I know that um, Lance, you may, but this concept of the mortgage rate lockdown of, you know, we were at a point a couple of years ago where I think it was 80% of people had a rate under 4%. And then that started to erode a little bit. I mean, really because of what we just talked about, life happens. Um, people are okay. Um, there is a psychological thing and we've, the, we've joked about it before. There's a psychological thing about going to a, a, a party and bragging about your two and a half percent rate. And I think at a certain point in time, you know, People aren't going to care about that if you need an extra bedroom. But ha have you seen the, uh, the 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 mortgage rate lockdown? Like the percentage of people with rates under four. Have you seen that starting to erode? And do you do you anticipate that's going to continue to erode to help loosen up some inventory across the country? Yeah, it, it's. I mean, there's some of that occurring, uh, definitely, and the net effective mortgage rate is going to be moving up. When mortgage rates started to rise, the net effective mortgage rate in the country, if you take every mortgage out there, was 3.6%. And we're moving up to four quickly. Uh, but a part of that is just because, you know, the jump is so high. And so the seven ones, you know, it helps to move the math. 
Um, and, and so you will see some of those people sell. It's not like a hundred percent lock-in. It, it just really takes time. And it takes that word that we brought up earlier, which is uh, uh, switching cost. And I think that's why it's probably the healthiest way to look at it. Because yeah, you can calculate what somebody's monthly payment is now, and you can calculate you know, what their new monthly payment for the house would be that they want. But the individual switching cost is still going to vary because it's all going to be, you know, how, you know, what's happened in their family situation, all these other factors that kind of come together and uh, make up the psychological side of the housing market for, or for them personally. And I'm going to just, you know, use the word switch for a moment, you know, switching to a story you wrote recently um, about the, shrinkflation of houses and it's something that we've been talking about for years is you know, personally I, I i hope that house sizes come down because you know not not as many people need a five thousand square foot single family house as the they might think but have you seen you know and we'll link all these stories in, in the show notes but you wrote a story about how house sizes for new construction are slowly reducing are you so if you can touch on that a bit but also if you're seeing that more prevalent in any of the regions of the country. Uh, I'd be curious to know if like the Northwest has smaller houses or the Southeast or what have you. So I know it's a long question, but if you don't mind. Yeah. So I, I've seen Zonda break it down by market, but it's about four and five markets. And I can't tell you off the top of my head, the few that were the exceptions. I think Seattle might have been one of the ones that isn't necessarily getting smaller. But big picture, what's been going on for about nine years is we've seen square footage start to come down a bit. And, and so one of the big factors that's driving it is, is just the fact that builders can finally, you know, be, you know, selling some of these smaller um, single family homes into a marketplace where there's a demand. Because if you go back 10, 12 years ago, the bottom third of the market, when you had all the tightening of the mortgage standards, that's what got knocked out, right? And that's what was super uh, financially stressed during the GFC period and coming out of it. So builders now having that marketplace and those borrowers being in a little healthier spot over the past several years, not right now necessarily, but that's one of the reasons that you've seen some of that market slowly come back. Because it's important to remember that the housing bus did not just suppress single family construction and especially entry level construction for one, two, three, four years. It didn't just do it for the six years of the housing uh, correction, housing crash. It also did it for eight, 10 years almost, where into 2014, you were still very depressed levels of single family construction for entry level. So that rollover of that trend is the first part. The second part is demographics, where uh, you have more singles buying, you have people having fewer kids. Uh, that demographic piece is naturally making more of a market for smaller homes. And then the third, and I would really categorize this as the past 18, 24 months, is that affordability has rapidly went from a healthy place to a historically unhealthy place. We have made the shift all the way across the spectrum in just like 24 months. I mean, the affordability deterioration that we have all just witnessed is the fastest ever. It actually beats the early 80s, late 70s deterioration. Now, affordability then when mortgage rates got to 18 was a bit worse than this. 
but the the speed of the change, this was the most rapid on the speed, going from a 2% mortgage rate to a 6-7. The math, when you break it down, that deterioration was historic. And so given how fast affordability has moved, one of the ways that builders can make some adjustments on affordability is you know, cutting corners, making lots smaller, making the home smaller. Uh, those are things that make sense. So I, I would put it in the I would put those three things being the main drivers. One is just the single family market for entry level has bounced back over the past decade a bit. Uh, two is demographics. And then the third is that affordability has deteriorated so quickly and so rapidly. Yeah, I, will, I will say one of the most interesting things that I, I thought of in that article that that post that you wrote was that, you know, I have thought for for years we've been picturing and watching communities change their zoning requirements that adds regulatory burden, that adds expense to the development of lots. And so the lots have been developing into townhouse lots more frequently than into single family. And so more and more builders are getting into kind of just duplicative um, home plans that can be just done over and over and over again, right? And what your piece was pointing out, though, is that there also are now communities that are doing single family tiny house communities. And some of the, one of the pictures I remember looking at thinking that is the wildest, it looks like a 13 foot wide, um, two story house. And, you know, I think those, those shifts are that people still, the buyer public is saying, we still want to live in single family housing. Um, and that going back to the 1930s, forties, when we were building 1200 square foot homes for full, you know, families with three and four kids, that was that was the norm. And we've obviously altered those homes a fair amount over the last 50, 60 years. But we're now returning back to trying to build something that's smaller, that that fits the pocketbook and fits the lot sizes and meets the regulatory requirements um, for the for the zoning. It's just an interesting, you know, it's the whole circle's coming around. Yeah. And, and I, you know, my view is uh, that the the key piece missing in the housing market um, is just the entry level single family house sure. uh, is the biggest piece missing, and maybe it's a bit different in your market, but th that's generally if you ask me for you know the biggest problem in the U.S. housing market, in my view, it's the missing entry level single family housing, uh, and the reason is it was the it was the hardest hit during the housing bust uh, period when you had the mortgage uh, lending tightening and everything that was going on, and the fact that that group of buyers was the hardest hit by GFC. It just really, you know, dried out that market uh, for just too long. Well, I think the other piece is that as we watch development and we watch new construction happening, it's not happening in the lowest end because the the builders want, and I and understandably so, want to maximize their profitability off of individual lot sizes. And that tends yep. to be a larger house. And that means that the percentage of homes that are in any community that our entry level size and price are shrinking by as a percentage of, of available housing options. Yeah. That, that first rung on the ladder of, of, so of housing market, is, is high. So, so in your market, how does entry level single family housing do if it's, you know, priced right and, you know, it's in good move in condition they're, they're, relative to, you know, some of these bigger homes. We, we've been building many, many, many more townhouses than single family for the entry level, because right now in, in Crozet, which is at a community just outside of, of Charlottesville, Jim, what the, the 
average single family new construction price was six hundred fifty thousand. Uh, for it's like six fifty in Crozet, but for new construction last year, um, average for you know four bed, two and a half bath, basement, and a garage for new construction was about eight fifty. Which is not entry level housing. You know, entry level housing in our market is almost yeah. non-existent. Right. Um, certainly not from new, you know, it's, new it's construction. Townhouse, it's townhouses. For for new construction, it's a four hundred thousand dollar townhouse, broad brush, which is it, it's just a bonkers yeah. number. Um, so I, again, I don't. Entry. That that's entry for for us. Yeah, and what what did you say the entry level on the condos? What's the range there on new construction? About four fifty five hundred for for a townhouse. Uh, you know, that's gonna be a three or four bedroom with you know two and a half baths and maybe a eighteen hundred square eighteen to eighteen to nineteen hundred square feet. Yeah. Um. What What was your market during the pandemic? Was there a lot of like the DC migration in? And what kind of happened there? We definitely took on more uh, remote workers, but it wasn't, I, I don't feel like it was a massive shift of, of to remote. I mean, we certainly had, had some, and we did have lots of the pandemic buyer, but, um, you know, we operate in, in 15, 17 markets across the mid Atlantic. So some of our, some of our markets are big city, small city, you know, lots of, of differentiation and, and each market was a little bit different on that. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it, the pricing, like you said, the the affordability index has changed completely with our entire with with the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I think so, Lance. We I think that the Charlottesville, yeah. Virginia market has always been a, a destination location for people working remotely. I mean, for my twenty three years now in in in, in business, um, we've always had people who've said we want to live there, and one will find a new job, and one will keep their remote job. But you know, I I would love to see data. I've not been able to locate it. Um, that shows the the in migration, um, you know, since you know since you know March, April, well, call it, you know, June, July, twenty twenty through you know mid of twenty two, I guess. But it, it feels like we had a, a fair amount, but nothing like you know we weren't. I wouldn't yeah. call us a, a you know an air quote zoom town uh, as we saw in a lot a of places. Place in Austin or Tampa, yeah. I've had a number of clients moving from Austin to Charlottesville in in part because of the. You know, the size and scale has shifted in Austin so much, but also from a from a climate perspective, uh, they they're identifying that as a is one of the probably top three or four reasons they're moving from Austin and some of these other parts of the country uh, to our area. Mm. Interesting. Are, my my question for you, Lance, is just you know stepping back a bit as you know, as you went from from Bloomberg to Fortune, and I somehow I missed your Realtor.com stint. Um, as you're building Resi Club. Are you having fun at building the business and writing every day, which is writing every day is, is it's an extraordinary skill to be able to do that with, with the depth that you do. And are you having fun doing this on a daily basis? Yeah. So, uh, I, I, I love writing about housing. I love making these charts. I love doing all this. Now, am I going to lie and say, you know, my content schedule is not a little brutal right now. Yeah. It's a little brutal right now. Uh, you know, I think I'm turning out like eight pieces plus trackers, all this stuff and the tweets and charts uh, and analyzing the data and doing the interviews. But the reason is, is I'm so excited to build Resi Club that I know early on just kind of like, yeah, I'm going to be, you know, pulling the swag in the most. But over time, if, if I can get revenue in and make a few hires and I just got actually my most critical hire 
Megan Malice, uh, who used to report to me over at Fortune, I hired her as a data editor. So she's going to take on some of the pieces. So if I could get it down to, you know, five, six a week, that would be amazing. Uh, but, you know, I, I love doing it and doing it so frequently and having to look at so many different directions in housing does help to make me a little sharper at times and kind of keeps me in the right spot that I need to be in, uh, which is just to really have a good pulse of the market. And, you know, because things can move quickly. I've got a, uh, a little bit of a selfish question for you that maybe you could uh, give some insight on. So we're at, at our brokerage nest, we're focused on market data a lot on a local level. And so we appreciate the national context that you kind of bring, bring to us in the regional context. What's a learning that you've had of how to, of how to make data interesting. Can you give, maybe give us a little bit of, of your insight or approach to that? Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that I, now it depends what you mean by that. If you mean like how to take your data that you have and then talk to a client about it or, you know, show it to somebody else. If that's the question, then one of the things that I think can be helpful is to kind of really pull back on the number of metrics you give them. Because if you're given them active listings, new listings, days on market, prices, all this stuff, it gets to be fuzzy. So one of the things that I do in my work is I really try to lean on two core metrics, which is prices and then inventory. And the way that I do inventory right now is comparing the market relative to where it used to be in 2019. And the reason is, as I found a really strong correlation with price growth right now, based on the distance markets are from pre-pandemic inventory levels. So I can use those two metrics and really understand markets that are tightening, markets that are weakening, markets that are tight, markets that are weak. And, and I know those two sound like uh, they're the same thing, but they're not. It, the, like Austin right now is getting a little stronger, like a little tighter, but it is still a weak market, for example. Um, and so I, I really try to like, cut back the number of metrics that I'm using. Like, you know, I have 20,000 tweets and write a ridiculous number of articles. You almost never see me bring up days on market. Uh, now it's a critical metric and it's a great metric, but if I'm going in too many different directions, I'm gonna confuse people. And I already have a good proxy for what is essentially days on market. And it's just the way that I use actives if that makes sense. Now, I, I don't know if that's a great learning that everybody can replicate, uh, but I, I do think leaning on price and then maybe one other metric, um, it, depending on who you're talking to, to kind of like just pull back the amount of content you're putting into their heads. No, I, I um, love and it. so if you read my pieces, one of the other things I do is I, I try to keep them tight to the subject and, and you know, most of the pieces I don't try to give, like, here's what's going on in the U.S. housing market type. I, I try to keep it to whatever I'm discussing at the moment. Yeah, I, I will say one of the things that we've we've focused on for the last 15 years is that consistency of the data you're utilizing is unbelievably important. That it doesn't matter whether the market's good or bad. You need to be focusing on the same metrics, right? Yes, there are other outside pieces that you're going to draw on. And, and for you being talking about shrinkflation, you're pulling on a different metric 
to tell a different story. But the core of that is still going to be the price point. And for us, we've we've continuously talked with our agents about the exact same things year in and year out, which is where are the interest rates, what is the consumer sentiment, and what is the un, in the employment rates, right? That's those three are the things that we focus most on what drives the market. Price is what's important ultimately to our client, but we need to be focused on the underlying piece, good or bad market. And I think having something that you can hold to and be consistent on is is what allows you to tell that story and, and retain people's trust. Keith, I think you answered the question better than I did. That's really it. It's however you're going to tell that story, be consistent with yeah. it, right? Um, th that's really what it is. So I have a certain way that I do it and you guys are probably have a certain way you do it, but the fact that we replicate it and so that over time, you know, we can show shifts if it moves one way or the other. And then most importantly, it's also for yourself so that you make sure that you have the explanation for why these metrics matter and like down pat, and you can quickly synthesize that into like very different people who have very different um, you know, abilities to kind of analyze data. And so that, you know, you have your, you know, your, your uh, talking points kind of down. Well, I mean, I think it's a matter of, you know, I'm going to throw it to Jonathan here in a second, but I think that one of the things that, that I try to do personally and have for many years and, and talking to agents and consumers is knowing the market and knowing the numbers. And I don't need to know, and I'm frankly, I don't want to know every single facet of the market, you know, down to the price per square foot for, you know, basements on Main Street. But I need to know how the market is moving and how it's shifting because, you know, we do this every day. We study this every day. And the consumers, you know, they they don't. They read the headlines. They see, you know, the inventory is up 12% or 8% nationally. But in our market, it's nowhere near that. I mean, we're, you know, Keith, we have in, in the city of Charlottesville, population of about 50,000 people. We have, what, three or what? How many? How many listings? This this morning we had sixteen listings. So we have sixteen listings. That's new construction and resale. <laughs> that's that's townhouses, condos, and single family. That's the entire, yeah, entire offering is sixteen homes for forty five thousand residents. So contextually, again, I think that you know a lot of what we do is the, the data. The data matters, and that's just I'm just shaking my head at that number. The data matters, but it's the the storytelling, and I think that to to say what you said again is. You know, our role in many ways is yes, understanding the data, but also to tell that story. And I think that you know, if if you if I failed at communicating to to my client, that's the failure on me and not on them because I need to be able to to convey that story comprehensively so that they can take it and then they make the decision. Because we in our world yeah. make no decisions; we provide the guidance and the professionalism and the expertise, hopefully, and then the clients are the ones buying or selling are the ones who are taking that information and that contextualization and, and deciding. Yeah, no, that that's great. And I, you know, I think that I'll just kind of side note for our, for our agents that are listening in terms of, you know, how do you build trust with your clients when you're meeting with them for the first time through data? There's a couple of approaches. One is to just flood them with every bit of data in the world. Or the other is Lance, like you just said, is, Hey, pick two or three pieces and go all in on those and really know know those numbers like the back of your hand and then maybe add a little story like context personal story experience behind it so uh so anyways i appreciate the insight on that it's great um it's it, that's a uh, great feedback um from your uh from your learnings yeah yeah and it's also like uh you know it's almost like a 20 80 thing or a 10 and 90 thing where you're giving them 10 percent of the info 
but you have 90% in your head and you're kind of like ready for any question that comes at you. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that I like to, you know, show the data on like, let's say Austin, but then dig in and show the inventory on Austin, because it's like, you know what, a lot, 95% of markets aren't Austin. Uh, you know, Austin is well above pre-pandemic inventory levels. And, you know, they've seen a lot of the, you know, crazy money come in from California during the pandemic. But I think if somebody's like, you know, brings up the fact that some of these markets are falling, like to be able to, you know, explain, hey, here's Austin's inventory, here's our inventory. It's a very different picture. Um, I So I, you know, I think you kind of give them maybe 10, 20 percent and then the rest you're just kind of, you know, prepared and good preparation for any type of questions that can come. Yeah. Got it. Got it in your back pocket and ready to ready to release it if you need to. Um, so as we wrap this, we really appreciate the conversation. It's really insightful. I'd love to ask you one final question. You know, clearly you are, you are all in on Resi Club and you're all in on the residential housing market and kind of understanding what's happening. And we're also at a, at a moment in time right now. And I think this moment may last for a little bit longer where, um, you know, it's kind of an historic levels. It's a historic mark where there's low inventory and housing can prices continue to, to increase and affordability is at an all time low. So as you're in this market, building this business, for the long run, what's the one detail that you're sweating on a regular basis and really paying attention to? Yeah, um, well, I'll tell you the thing that keeps me up at night is the fact that uh, the Federal Reserve just went through the fastest rate hiking cycle in 40 years. So that's the part that can keep me keeps me up at night just to, you know, because the unknown there is what happens in like the labor market and if things were to shift there, because that can change how the housing side of it, although, you know, depending on how things played out, it could actually temporarily improve housing affordability if rates move down quickly. So I, I think the thing that keeps me up at night is probably, you know, any big shifts in the macro economy to where that can shift all of my itty bitty stories that I'm writing, right? And I have to be prepared for that. And the example I give there is the lockdowns and the work from home boom and all the stimulus. And then two, on the other, the flip side of that, the rate shock, like those were both very big events that moved the housing story in a way that we haven't seen really suddenly like that in a very long time. So I think that's the thing that kind of uh, keeps me up at night is, or, well, I sleep well, so uh, maybe it doesn't keep me up but uh, just the things that I'm kind of paying attention to, because the the views there, there. I mean, you know, I'm not a macroeconomist, but I, you know, follow what those folks are writing, and even they don't know. Um, and you know, and their calls on this have been, you know, their track record hasn't been great. So I, I think that's the thing that you know I kind of keep an eye on. Awesome, uh, Lance. Thank you. That was. Um... An amazing conversation, and I, I learned a ton. Uh, so I'll say thank you for your time today, and also thank you for writing what you do because it, it, it is as an interested consumer, I'm better, I'm better informed, and as somebody who represents clients, you know, on a day to day basis, I am far better informed because my my role from a practitioner is to read more and know more about than my clients do about what we're doing. Uh, and so thank you for uh, you know giving me the opportunity to, to educate myself for my clients. So thank you. Thanks. It was great. Yeah. Thank, thank you for having me on. I, I will leave with one thing. 
Uh, if listeners could just Google the word switching cost and just read some of the definitions on it and kind of like digest that word, I think it's great because it can apply to a lot of things in housing. And it is kind of what housing is. It's, it is financial, but then it is also the psychological, the lifestyle, all that other side of it too. So I, I think it's a great uh, word to kind of memorize. No, that's, that's awesome, Lance. We will be sure to put that in our show notes when we, we put this out as well. Yeah, I have to thank you again for helping me write my show notes. Um, <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, happy, happy Friday. Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it. Anytime. Have a great Talk day. Soon. Thanks, Lance.